Today's scripture reading will come from John 18, verse 12 through 28. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Then he said these things. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, are, also, are you also not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Caiaphas had a mission to kill Jesus, but it was complicated. It couldn't happen immediately. It couldn't happen in the open. There was still way too much confusion about who this Jesus really was. He needed to be patient and look for the right opportunity. And it would appear that that opportunity had just presented itself. Jesus was finally arrested and brought to Annas before coming to Caiaphas. And in verse 14, we see a description in the text that sticks out to us like a sore thumb. It's one of the only comments that the narrator makes in this entire section. He says in verse 14 that it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas had made this recommendation to the rest of the Jews many months earlier. We see it back in John chapter 11. Jesus was doing what Jesus does, performing miracles and teaching on who he is and what his mission is. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. The word was starting to get out that this guy is going to a whole new level. The Jews didn't know what to do. And it says in John eleven forty nine, one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, 
you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They had a mission to kill Jesus. And just like that, in God's rich irony, he would use the evil plans of the religious elite to accomplish his mission of bringing people together under that one person, Jesus, that they would become the children of God. And now that plan was enacted. Jesus was arrested under the cover of darkness and he was brought to the home of Annas. There are two parts to this part of the story, two events that are seen side by side. There's the, what's happening on the outside and what's happening on the inside. What's happening in the courtyard and what's happening in the courtroom. Jesus had been taken away. The auxiliary detachment of soldiers who had arrested him in the garden had now handed him over to the Jews and had gone back to retreat to their barracks. They had witnessed glory that night. They had seen the godness of Jesus as he displayed it to them. They were arrested by it as they fell backwards onto the ground. And yet, yet he allowed them to arrest him for the sake of his mission and for the sake of the glory that would be revealed at a later time. It appeared from the outside that the soldiers had achieved victory that night, that their mission was accomplished. But deep down inside, you, you wonder if they just knew better. <laughs> It'd be fascinating to listen to the conversation in the barracks that evening when they talked about what they saw and what they heard and what they felt. Of course, the real mission would be accomplished the real victory would be won, not by the soldiers, not by the religious elite, but the victory that was coming in the hours ahead would be the victory of God. And so Jesus was handed over to the Jewish officials, and first they took him to the residence of a man named Annas. Annas was the former high priest of Israel. He was the one who was aged in his years and influential and in the both political scene of navigating relationships between the Jews and the Romans and the religious scene of everything related to the temple. He was the father-in-law of the current high priest who is named Caiaphas. And the text is a little bit confusing here because here we see in John 18 that they both are referred to by the title the high priest. And so it says they took him to the house of the high priest and then they took him to the house of the high priest. And sometimes it's a little bit hard to figure out, well, which high priest are they talking about? Think about it this way. 
Annas maintained the title high priest uh, out of respect for his influence and for his service. It's very similar to the way that we would refer to a president of the United States today that's been out of office for some amount of time. You would meet a president who's been out of office for 20 years. He's long departed the office and you would still address him by the title, Mr. President. And so we see Annas, the former high priest, is still very influential and is referred to as the high priest. And his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the current high priest, would be the one that Jesus was brought to next. Inside the home of Annas functions as an informal courtroom for the night. And outside, two disciples of Jesus are following. Tells us that one of those disciples is Peter. The other one is most likely John. And and John was known by Annas. We don't really know how or why. But you can sort of picture how the conversation went about that allowed them access to the courtyard. John, a familiar face, walks up to the gate. The servant girl says, hello, John. And he says, hello. Hey, do you think that we could get inside and see what's going on? Ah, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot going on. I don't know if you want a piece of that action. No, no, no. We really, I mean, we'll just, we'll just stand in the back and be quiet. It won't be a big deal. Uh, yeah, okay, come on in. Hey, Pete, let's go. She's letting us in. And in the gate, they go. And as they do, they drift back toward the fire. But it's not quite that easy. Because as John passes through the gate and Peter behind him, she says, hey, You're not one of his disciples, are you? I am not, he replies, as he slips into the background of the coal fire and the nighttime darkness. There's an interrogation that's happening on the inside of Jesus, but now comes the interrogation that's going to happen on the outside of his followers. There's two types of trials happening on this night, the trial of the courtroom and the trial of the courtyard. And as Peter gives his first denial of Jesus, there are two observations that we can make. The first one is that in asking him if he is a follower of Jesus, this servant girl is not merely inquiring about his social affiliations. This was an interrogation of his beliefs. If you were a follower of Jesus, if you were a disciple of Jesus in these final days, you weren't hanging around him simply for your relational affiliation to him. You were hanging around most likely because you actually believed him. And the same is true in many ways today. If you call yourself a Christian, at work or in your neighborhood or in your different spheres of influence, people who are hostile to the things of God and they inquire, you're not one of his followers, are you? They're not asking about your mere affinity to the things of God or your desires for some kind of relationship with Jesus. They're 
interrogating your beliefs. When you get asked that question, what they're really asking is, do you actually believe his teaching? Do you really believe in miracles? Do you believe that he is the son of God like he said he was? Do you believe that he was raised from the dead? Wait, do you mean to tell me that you believe in a literal heaven and a literal hell? Do you actually believe in sin? And what Jesus says is sin? And if you believe that, then what do you believe about me? Do you really believe that he is the only way to God? You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? And in fact, if you're going to stand with Jesus, what we see is that you must truly believe in him. Otherwise, your feigned allegiance when come under the test might fail. The second observation that we see here is just in this very short dynamic is that Peter fades into the background of the night around the fire and he is clearly keeping his distance from what is going on. If we pause for a moment, it reminds us what Jesus had told of his disciples just some hours earlier. He says, if the world hates you, and they will, then know that they hated me first. And they do. And it's one thing to hear that and to sort of engage with it conceptually, but it's a completely different thing to say, I'm in the courtyard right now with the ones who represent the world and I know they hate him. And if they find out I'm with him, I have no idea what it's going to mean for me. And so Peter has a desire to be close, but not too close, to blend in. And it reminds you, I think, and it reminds me of the struggle that we all have at different points of our spiritual walk to follow Jesus, but not too close, (laughs) to blend into the fabric of society around us because we're afraid of what it means if they hate him, that they're going to hate us as well. And August 10th, 1948, a pioneering television producer named Alan Funt debuted a hidden camera reality TV show. And it was called Candid Camera. Debuted in 1948. And the genius of the show is that it caught people in the act of being themselves. It produced a lot of laughs but it gave insights into the human psyche and human behavior. One episode titled Face the Rear showed an unsuspecting person who boarded an elevator, and as we all do when we board an elevator, we turn around and we face the front where the door is. And that person was followed by three actors who entered the elevator, and they all remained facing the rear. And you can imagine what happened next, the sort of growing angst that happened in, in the mind of this man as he decided what he was going to do, to turn, to not to turn. Why are they looking at me? Are they looking at the back wall? What's happening? And finally, at that point, a fourth actor entered the elevator and also faced the rear. And without fail, 
They reproduced the prank many times over. Every single person caved to the social influence exerted by those facing the rear. It was too overwhelming for them to remain the only one facing the front. It's a great illustration of what it looks like to be Christian in a society that's increasingly moving away from God. Because the pressure for you to face the rear, as it were, will only mount further and further. And the allegiance to Jesus to continue to face forward will be tested. The followers of Jesus will be interrogated for their affiliation and for their belief. It's good for you to know. That's part of being a follower. And it's nearly impossible to blend into the background if you truly follow. It's impossible to ride the fence. It's impossible to be close but not too close without denying him. Peter was being interrogated, but he wasn't the only one being interrogated that night. Jesus was in the house of Annas, the former high priest. And verse 19 says that the high priest then questioned Jesus about two things. He questioned about his disciples and about his teaching. This was also an interrogation of belief. And the question that is being asked again and again of Jesus is, who are you? It's the question that is littered through the Gospel of John. Who are you, really? Are you really who you say you are? Or are you something different altogether? In John chapter 10, this question was asked pointedly of Jesus. The Jews gathered around him and they said to him in verse 24, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And from there, Jesus gave many more answers to the question, who are you? And of course, we have seen again and again, he answers it most profoundly with a series of statements that say, I am, I am, I am, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Who are you? I am this, Jesus says. But the urgency of the question, who are you, is pressing Annas so much that he brings him in in an unorthodox and probably illegal casual trial by night to press further. And as he does, we see that Jewish law requires that witnesses are the ones to be interrogated before a defendant. There are no witnesses present. There are hundreds of witnesses peppered throughout the town. And so when Annas asks him the question, Jesus, with rich irony, says, ask the witnesses. <laughs> They've heard what I've said rather plainly. Oh, but they're not here, are they? And Annas realizes quickly that this informal interrogation is going nowhere. Jesus has said what he has said. He's done what he's done. He will not change his mind. He will not recant his teaching. 
And after a strike from the guard for Jesus' response, the former high priest then sends him to the current high priest, Caiaphas. Caiaphas, who we know has a mission, a mission to kill Jesus. Out in the courtyard, it was cold. Peter was by the fire, and someone thought they recognized him. And so the interrogation continued. You also are not one of his disciples, are you? I am not. The heart must have been racing. His mind must have been spinning. This was one of those moments where you feel like everybody can see straight through you. And you have to wonder, if, is he feeling any sense of betrayal at this moment, or is this just sheer self-preservation at this point? At the very least, Peter had to be looking at the angles. He had to be looking at the gate. He had to be thinking to himself, this thing is about to turn south really fast. What is the fastest way for me to get out of here? Somebody else recognized him now. Somebody else recognized his face. Just a few hours earlier, they were in the garden, and there were maybe 100, maybe 200 soldiers to arrest the 12. And Peter rashly cut off the ear of Malchus, one of the servants of the high priest, probably the high priest whose house they were at right now out in the courtyard. And as they stood around the fire, Malchus's cousin was there. And you can just picture it, right? He'd been gazing at Peter now for a number of minutes through the glow. And after a long and pregnant pause that felt like it lasted for days, but probably lasted for seconds. It was time to break the ice. Didn't I just see you in the garden? This was Peter's chance. This was his opportunity. This was his chance to take his stand. This was his chance to run into the furnace with his friend. This was his chance to reveal what he really believed and who he really believed in. This was his chance to exercise courage and sacrifice based on what he knew was right. This was his chance to speak up now and to follow Jesus anywhere, to follow him all the way to the cross if need be. This was his big opportunity. And verse 27 says, Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. And we remember, don't we, just hours earlier, just hours earlier at the Last Supper, Jesus is telling his disciples that he will be leaving soon and there's great consternation. Peter says to him, John 13, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. I will follow you anywhere. Anything you need me to do, I will do. 
And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. You're starting to see it, right? You're starting to see the contrast of what's going on here. Peter stand, or Jesus stands up under the scrutiny of revealing his identity at the arrest and the scrutiny of the interrogators inside. And Peter hides his identity to avoid his arrest and crumbles under the interrogation on the outside. That throughout the whole section, Jesus is saying, I am, I am, I am, I am. And they get to the garden, the moment of rest, and he says, I am he. And Peter, through the whole section, is saying, I am not, I am not, I am not. And Peter says, I'll follow you anywhere. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, no, you won't. But I will lay down my life for you. You can't go where I go, Peter. (laughs) You can't do what I have to do. You can't accomplish this mission. We began by pointing out that the high priest was on a mission to kill. And we end by seeing that Jesus is still on the mission to save. And the mission to kill and the mission to save are starting to come together. And he's the only one who can do it. And so what does that mean for you? Why is this important for you to think about and to examine? Why are these details of his arrest important for your life? It means this whole section is in here to illustrate this overriding point that there is only one person who can do what needs to be done for us to be saved from the consequences of our sin. There's only one. It means that when I try to justify myself before God by doing good or being good or saying good things or having good motives and, I, and I'm tempted to think, God, that's enough for me to have favor with you, It points to the fact that I still actually can't accomplish what needs to be done. There's only one person that can walk that road. And it means on the other end of the spectrum, for all of the bad things that I've done, and I say, God, I've done all of these terrible things, and there's no possible way that you can save me or would want to save me. It means that there is a person who has walked the road so that you can have redemption. And there's only one that's able to do it. Jesus walks the road that no one can keep him from, and at the same time, he walks the road that no one, not even Peter, can follow. He's on a mission to save. Salvation comes through sacrifice, and he is the only one who can do it. Some of you are here today and you might feel more like the latter. You might feel like you are beyond saving. The bad things that you've done pile too high. But you need to know that Jesus walks the lonely road for you 
Nicholas II was the Tsar of Russia and besides having a fantastic name, he had the habit of disguising himself and visiting his military outposts for the purpose of evaluating them. In one of those outposts, a young man whose father had enlisted him in the military to try to put some discipline into the young man's life was stationed. But the army had done the opposite effect as it does for so many others. It fuels the fires of the wildlife that this young man led. And one of the young soldier's weaknesses was gambling. And so it happened that he was also the bookkeeper of this particular outpost. Gambling plus bookkeepers, not a great mix. And as his gambling debts grew, this young soldier found that the only way that he could continue was to pilfer some of the outposts' funds to pay his debts. Instead of hitting a rich, however, he continued to go deeper and deeper into debt against the outpost's treasury. One night he decided that it was time to add up all the debts to see how much he owed, and when he saw the immense debt, he was crushed, and he decided that he would commit suicide. He took out his gun, and he wrote across the ledger, so great a debt, who can pay? And as he contemplated suicide, he dozed off to sleep. Tsar Nicholas II was inspecting the outpost that night and he was disguised as an officer of low rank. And seeing the light burning in the bookkeeper's shack, he went in to investigate. Inside the shack, he saw the man with the gun resting on his lap and the writing in the ledger. And immediately he understood the situation. And when the soldier woke, he drew his gun again and held it to his head. And with one last glance, he looked down at the writing on the ledger. So great a debt, who can pay? And underneath those words were these. Paid in full, Tsar Nicholas II. You see, sin has a way of piling up. Sin has a way of accumulating such a huge debt that we cannot repay ourselves. There's an old song entitled, Sin Will Take You Farther. <laughs> and the chorus goes something like this. It says, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Slowly, but wholly taking control. Sin will leave you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. However, the good news is there is a way out. And the way out happens because Jesus walked the lonely road for your redemption. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1.7 that in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Redemption simply means the payment of a ransom. And what you see in John chapter 18 and what you will see in John chapter 19 and beyond is the payment for ransom. 
that Jesus, by allowing himself to be arrested, by going through the trial, by walking the road that only he can walk, is the one who only offers payment for ransom. He's the only one that can give you redemption. Nobody can do it for themselves, and no other person could do it for Jesus. And so if you're here today and you're a Christian, you've professed him as your Savior, what does this mean for you? It means hold with great, great confidence, great, great resolve that there is one way to God. And when you're tempted to justify yourself before him, you know that that is not the way. That Jesus walks the path for you. And if you're here today and you have not yet put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then you need to know no matter which angle you try to approach God at, no matter what kind of self-justification you have, no matter how great the pile of your debt of sins might be, that Jesus walks the road for you, for ransom, for payment, for redemption. And the call for you is to reach out to this only son of God, this only perfect being, and say, I need you. And I want what only you can give. The road of redemption is a lonely road for Jesus. And as we move toward Easter, we see that he is the only one who can do it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the willingness of your son to go down this path that no one can follow. We thank you for the resolve of your son to go down this path and let no one else hinder him. We thank you for the mission of redemption which brings men and women and boys and girls scattered from all corners under the umbrella of a heavenly Father who loves them. And I pray today that we, no matter where we are, would bask in this love, that we'd respond in faith, that we would grow in resolve, and that we would continue to trust this one and only Savior. It's in his name that we pray for our good and for his glory. Amen.